0: Real noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Living History UK Podcast. A podcast for the discerning and knowledge-hungry historians out there. You can support our podcast and get much more from Living History UK by joining our Patreon from just one pound. And by doing so, you'll be a part of an ever-growing community. And really helped to make a difference as we strive to keep history alive but for now enjoy this podcast scum of the earth a phrase used subjectively by the duke of wellington to describe his own troops and yet the british soldier was seen by many as the most professional in europe and even in the world the humble british infantryman would help to form the backbone of the allied army at waterloo they were well drilled Reliable and formidable in the face of Napoleon's infantry. Over the course of this episode, we will depart on a journey over the 26-year period of the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars beginning in the year 1789. But before we do so, let's talk statistics. In 1789, the British Army numbered 41,000 men. And this was a number to police the whole of the British Isles, as well as the rest of the empire, from Canada to India and beyond. Yet by 1815, the army numbered some 250,000 men. The navy, on the other hand, seen as the Wall of Oak to protect Britain from her enemies, numbered 16,000 men in 1789. But, again, by 1815, the navy had swelled to 140,000 men. Between 1789 and 1815, the total cost of the wars would cost the British Exchequer a total sum of £1,650,000,000, and that's in old money. The government of the day raised a radical and much disliked taxation, income tax, something we all still pay today. It's estimated that 25% of the total cost of the wars were paid via income tax. The French Revolution began in 1789 and it sent tidal waves through Europe. The thought of a monarchy being threatened by ordinary people was almost unthinkable. Britain had in the 17th century executed its monarch, Charles I, and introduced a constitutional monarchy. But the French wanted to go one step further and abolish the monarchy completely, and they succeeded. Tremors of these events were felt in capital cities all over Europe, and most notably in London. Radicals such as William Blake sought to capitalise on the events unfolding in France, writing highly critical poems and pamphlets about both the church and state. By the early 1790s, there was feeling in Britain that France was rapidly becoming a threat and could seek to invade. King Louis had by now been executed, and revolutionary fervour had turned into a tidal wave of cutthroat aggression, which had in turn extended its tentacles to invade the Netherlands. Britain's main trade partner was now under threat, as was the economy, and so was its existence as a sovereign, independent nation. The War of the First Coalition began in 1702, and Britain's role was largely limited to backing separatist forces to rise up against the revolutionaries, like at Quiberon, where French royalist troops were landed, but soundly defeated by the French revolutionaries. A number of naval engagements, such as Toulon and Cape St Vincent, ensured that Britain retained dominance of the seas. The first coalition saw Spain, Austria, Prussia, Portugal and several other nations as well as Britain, ally to take on France together. By the mid-1790s, the French had introduced conscription, further swelling their ranks and again dwarfing the size of Britain's army. After winning a series of victories across Europe, the French had invaded Italy and then roundly defeated the Austrians, capturing 18,000 men in one sweep. French Marshals Moreau and Hoche were leading French armies deep into the heart of Germany. The War of the First Coalition would come to an end in 1797, but not before a botched invasion attempt of Britain at Fishguard in Wales. A force of 1,500 men under Irish-born American William Tate were landed at Fishguard on the 22nd of February 1797. Within days, they had surrendered without a shot being fired. It is safe to say that Fishguard was a big wake-up call to those in government and it had highlighted just how poorly the British Isles were defended, even with their mighty navy patrolling the high seas. By the end of 1797, the British had been busy recruiting emigre and foreign corps into their ranks to bolster their numbers and to counter the ever-growing threat from France. Furthermore, experimental formations were also being trialled, including most notably the raising of the 5th Battalion of the 60th Regiment. This battalion were comprised principally of men drafted from emigre regiments and were to be equipped with a radical new weapon, the rifle. These men were clothed in green and most importantly, were trained to operate as riflemen. Baron Francis de Rottenberg wrote a drill manual specifically for riflemen, which in turn helped to form the basis of Sir John Moore's work with the famous Light Division. This following newspaper extract from the Northampton Mercury, dated Saturday the 31st of March 1798, best explains the appearance of these mysterious riflemen at court. The Duke of York, on the King's return from court yesterday, brought with him two Hungarian soldiers, who were to serve in the 60th Regiment of Foot for His Majesty's inspection. They were dressed in the regimentals of their country, which consisted of an olive green jacket, blue pantaloons, black gaiters striped with red, and wore on their heads hussar caps with a green feather. They were accouted with rifle-barrel guns, and went through their exercise with astonishing celerity, which their method of ramming down and drawing the charge greatly contributes to they returning the rod into its place after it is thrown up with only one motion instead of twirling it between the fingers as practised by our troops. His Royal Highness has, for his regiment, several more of these men who were also to be viewed by His Majesty for approbation. In the late 1790s, local militias and volunteer corps were being raised all over the country. Much akin to the Home Guard of the Second World War, the militia and volunteers were there to provide a home defence force to help repel and slow down any potential invasion. Wealthy gentry, such as the Percy family at Annick Castle, raised their own volunteer force, the Percy Tenantry Volunteers, something which was mirrored all over the country. Whilst tentative steps were being made to refine and improve the army, the backbone of the army was the ordinary private soldier. He was clothed in a red tailcoat, armed with a musket and sported a cocked hat. Their drill was slow, but precise, and the regiments were, up until the late 1790s at least, ran by their colonels. A payment was secured from the War Office, and accoutrements, clothing and such like were purchased at a regimental level. This saw the opportunity for colonels to skim off the profit for themselves, something which happened on a frequent basis. Uniformity in clothing, and more importantly in drill, was lacklustre to say the least, and meant two regiments parading alongside each other often looked mismatched and had varying levels of competency in drill. This hampered teamwork on the battlefield and lacked tactical prowess, meaning cohesion between units was almost non-existent. Something had to give. The Duke of York, of nursery rhyme fame, lacked any useful military skill, but did however find great success in administration. He brought sweeping changes to the army over his tenure, including most notably the clothing board. The board sat on a monthly basis in Whitehall at Horse Guards and decided on regulating patterns of clothing as well as examining the quality of uniform and accoutrements amongst others for its soldiers in the army. This board made wide sweeping changes to the way the army was equipped, largely for the better. Having seen the original clothing board minute books, Their eye for detail was impeccable and it played a pivotal role in bringing the army literally to a uniform standard as well as saving thousands of pounds a year by using approved suppliers. Another change brought in by the Duke of York was the introduction of an officer training centre which would see men trained on skill and merit rather than by purchasing their way up the ranks. This meant the men on the field would be led by officers who possessed the right credentials to lead and were armed with the knowledge to exploit weakness and harness strength. This officer training college is still in use today, and is of course Sandhurst Military College, which has seen thousands of officers go through its doors over the years. But the efforts were not confined to administration. An audacious building programme was begun, the largest since Tudor times, which saw a series of forts built along the coastline nearest to France. These were Martello Towers, and many of them still survive today. These towers were built to help repel any French invasion, and most were constructed and operational by 1806. More recently, many have been repurposed as anti-invasion defences during the First and Second World War, with some still in use today being used as coastguard observation points. Such was the threat posed at this period in history to Britain, that soldiers on the southern coast would proclaim to have seen the white tents of the French army encamped near Calais, ...waiting to invade Britain. A short-lived peace, which lasted from March 1802 to May 1803... ...brought a brief respite... ...and also saw many militia and volunteer units disbanded in many parts of the country. May 1803 saw the beginning of the War of the Third Coalition. Napoleon was by now Emperor of France... ...and Britain had a new Prime Minister in William Pitt. The War of the Third Coalition lasted until 1806 and saw little real involvement from British ground forces. The French fought both the Austrians and Russians at Austerlitz, and the result would be terrifying for the British. Napoleon had faced off against two sizable armies, and won. However, all was not lost for the British. For only two months earlier, a resounding victory had been achieved off Cape Trafalgar by Horatio Nelson, destroying the combined French and Spanish fleets and thus providing some much-needed respite from the looming invasion threat. The War of the Third Coalition came to a close, but the French, however, were still not defeated, and the British army had still not tested them in the field, but their time would come. Britain retained dominance of the seas, but still did not wield a force strong enough to take on the might of France on land. The War of the Fourth Coalition came and went in the blink of an eye between October 1806 and July 1807, and saw only Britain and Sweden effectively left in the fight against the French. Napoleon had introduced a continental system, a trade embargo which forbade any neutral or allied nation to trade with Britain. Napoleon, who erroneously called the British a nation of shopkeepers, strove to starve Britain into submission. Napoleon grew suspicious of his Spanish allies, and put a sizeable force of men across the Pyrenees into Spain. Following abdication by Charles IV in favour of his son Ferdinand, who then in turn abdicated under pressure of Napoleon, Napoleon placed his brother Joseph on the throne, and the Spanish people began to rise up against Napoleon's plans, which saw massacres of Spanish citizens in Madrid. In excess of 100,000 French troops were now occupying Spain. A French army under Juno crossed the frontier into Portugal in November 1807. Portugal, being the oldest ally of Britain, immediately sought assistance and Britain answered the call. Spanish envoys called for similar assistance from Britain and so began the Peninsular War. Preparations for a British expeditionary force began in earnest and in August 1808, a force numbering 15,000 men landed at Mondego Bay in Portugal. The force was initially commanded by Sir Hugh Dalrymple and subsequently by Sir Arthur Wellesley, later to be the Duke of Wellington. The force went straight into action against the French at Relica and so the first shots of the Peninsular War would be fired by riflemen of the 5th 60th and 95th. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy, that's just not who I am. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wellesley defeated a French force of 5,000 men at Relica. And a few days later at Vimero, defeated a force numbering 15,000 men under French Marshal Junot. Wellesley wanted to give chase to the French. However, during the battle, Sir Henry Burrard and Sir Hugh Dalrymple both arrived and assumed command, refusing to give the authorization to turn the screw on the French. Napoleon was incensed at Juno's defeat, and he personally led an army into Spain to counter this new threat. The Convention of Sintra saw Juno and his French corps afforded safe passage from Portugal on British ships, back to France in October 1808. A subsequent inquiry was held, which investigated the terms of the convention, with Dalrymple, Burrard and Wellesley all eventually cleared of any wrongdoings. Wellesley, thankfully, hadn't signed the convention, and he returned to active service in the peninsula. Dalrymple and Burrard, however, did not. The British army in Spain was now under the command of Sir John Moore, and with his army numbering 16,000 men, They were woefully outnumbered against the French. The tactics employed by Moore at this time were to hit and run and to complement his Spanish allies. On the 16th of January 1809, the British had retreated to Coruña on the northwest coast of Spain, vying to withdraw the army from Spain in the face of overwhelming numbers. The French had caught the rearguard and gave chase. Moore decided to turn and give battle. This brought enough time for the army to evacuate and survive to fight another day. More, however, paid with his life. It was clear that the army just wasn't big enough for the task in hand. Marshal Salt, who'd been giving chase to the British before their withdrawal at Corunia, now turned his attention to invading Portugal. The Portuguese gave ground and took great losses in the face of the French onslaught. In April, Wellesley returned to Portugal and assumed command of the British army there, as well as the Portuguese army, which General Beresford had been busy training. Two battles in May 1809 saw salt turfed out of Portugal. The liberation of Spain had now begun. At Talavera on July the 27th 1809, the British force had by now swelled to 20,000 men and was further complemented by 35,000 men of the Spanish army under Cuesta. Talavera was a victory for the Allied forces, however Wellesley knew salt was converging and quickly withdrew back to Portugal to save being encircled. The tide of the war was now turning and the French were no longer seen as an invincible force. The British soldier and the investment in uniform, kit and training was beginning to pay off. The tactics employed by Wellesley saw him typically conceal most of his force behind the summit of a hill, on the reverse slope, to protect his men from artillery fire, but also to hide and conceal his numbers from the enemy. The British typically deployed two to three men deep, whilst the French advanced towards the enemy in columns. This meant the French could only level a small proportion of muskets at the enemy, whilst the British could bring all their muskets to bear. The French column, which had wreaked so much devastation against the Prussian and Russian armies amongst others, was not enjoying the same level of success against the disciplined and steady British soldier. It is notable to mention that Wellesley had a keen eye for keeping his army supplied. He had taken with him herds of cattle and had planned ahead to feed his army on the move. He laid out terms that any food or supplies required from the local populace was to be paid for, unlike the French who plundered and took whatever they required. Scorched earth tactics were frequently used by both sides too. Strings of victories were achieved over the coming months and years, slowly driving the French out of the peninsula. As just one example, Badajoz saw some wretched scenes of looting and rape, scenes which Wellesley despised and promised to never let them happen again. Provosts were recruited to keep order and discipline, a job which would prove tough in such a climate, where the spoils of war were frequently expected for the victor. Wellesley operated a different style of warfare to the French, He knew he needed the Portuguese and Spanish on side and sought to win a battle of popularity, hearts and minds if you will, and it certainly worked and saw numerous recruits flock to the Spanish and Portuguese armies under his command. The Peninsular War ground on until 1814 and it saw the British and Allied armies drive the French out of Portugal, through Spain and back across the Pyrenees, culminating with the Battle of Toulouse in April 1814. With the invasion of France, Napoleon had no choice but to abdicate and was exiled to the island of Elba, just off the Italian coast. Whilst the Allies were hammering out the terms of France's surrender, Napoleon escaped Elba and landed in the south of France and thus began the 100 Days Campaign. The Allies were caught completely off guard by Napoleon's sudden escape. They were busy at the Congress of Vienna and seven days before Napoleon got to Paris, they declared him an outlaw, and declared war on him, not on France. Austria, Russia, Prussia and Great Britain all agreed to put 150,000 men each into the field to beat Napoleon once and for all. At the beginning of this podcast, we outlined that in 1789, the British army numbered some 41,000 men in total, but by now, in 1815, the army numbered 250,000 men. Napoleon mustered a force just shy of 200,000 men and they were in the field by early June with a further 46,000 men in depots ready to join the offensive. Considered an immediate threat by Napoleon, the Duke of Wellington with his Anglo-allied army was situated near Waterloo in present-day Belgium. His force, which was growing in strength by the day, numbered 68,000 men. A Prussian force under Blucher, which numbered 50,000 men, was marching ever closer to Wellington. Napoleon decided the only way he could win was to divide and conquer. He marched north and crossed the frontier, seeking to give battle and drive a wedge between the Allied forces. He also hoped a victory in the Netherlands would see a revolt in favour of the French. Hostilities began on the 15th of June, 1815, when the French crossed the frontier and drove in Prussian outposts at Charleroi. Napoleon positioned himself between Wellington and Blucher. On the following day, with Salt fighting Wellington at Quatre Bras and thus securing the left flank, Napoleon defeated the Prussians at Ligny, sending them into retreat. Quatre Bras can be seen as a victory for the British, who largely fought a defensive action in the fields of corner wheat ripe for the harvest. However, tactically, it meant Wellington could not reinforce Blucher. The 17th of June saw Napoleon send one of his marshals, Grouchy, with a force of approximately 33,000 men, to chase and harass the Prussians and to ensure that they could not link up with Wellington. Grouchy did, however, achieve a victory against the Prussians the day after Waterloo at Wavre, but by which time it was too late. The Battle of Waterloo was fought just south of Mount Saint-Jean in modern-day Belgium. The battlefield saw Wellington occupy a ridgeline with three farmhouses, Papalot, La Sainte, and Hougoumont, all garrisoned with troops to act as a breakwater and to soak up the French assault. Wellington sought to fight a defensive battle, as he often did. They came on in the same old way, and we beat them in the same old way. He would often be heard to reminisce in years after the battle. It is worth noting at this point that the Anglo-Allied Army at Waterloo was a melting pot of many nations. It boasted 17,000 Dutch troops, 11,000 Hanoverian, 6,000 Brunswickers, 3,000 Nassau, and 31,000 British troops, including the King's German Legion. The British soldier was the backbone of the Anglo-Allied Army at Waterloo, and the various regiments from other nations were distributed amongst the British to help provide stability. After all, many of the other troops had until the year before been fighting for Napoleon. The British soldier at Waterloo wore a red coat with facings which denoted the regiment or corps that he belonged to. He wore, on the whole, the 1812 cap, or bang up as the soldier had nicknamed it, grey overalls with black gaiters and black leather shoes. He carried a flintlock brown best musket, a muzzleloader with a fire rate of approximately three rounds a minute. The last resort was to use the bayonet. On his back, he carried the knapsack as well as the haversack which contained his day's ration and a wooden canteen. He carried his ammunition in a leather pouch slung over his left shoulder. Throughout the day at Waterloo, the discipline of the British soldier would be tested. He would fire volley after volley, form square, form line, and then form square again, all this whilst under constant artillery attack. The arrival of the Prussians late in the afternoon of the battle was the beginning of the end for Napoleon. His last roll of the dice was to order his imperial guard forward. Colonel Colborne of the 52nd, a man who in 1795 had took part in the failed Quiberon expedition as an ensign, ordered his regiment to wheel on the left flank of the chasseurs of the guard. He sent forward a company to skirmish and the 71st on the opposite side of the guard mirrored Colborne's manoeuvre. This checked the advance of the guard and with one foul swoop saw the French falter and begin to retreat. For the first and last time, the words Lagarde Recule were heard. Napoleon had lost the Battle of Waterloo. Contrary to the song by Abba, Napoleon did not actually surrender at Waterloo. He in turn went on the run and finally surrendered on July the 15th 1815 on board HMS Bellerophon in the English Channel. A process which was years in the making had solidified the reputation of the British soldier and for the next hundred years war in Europe would largely be avoided. The foundations laid down by people like the Duke of York and Wellington to name just two continue to serve the army today. Many traditions from this period, such as hanging the brick, continue to be followed in the army and it is a period that many traditions and men were made. Wellington, for instance, will go on to serve as Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary. He died in 1852. Napoleon, meanwhile, was exiled again but this time to a much more remote part of the world, St Helena. He would die in 1821, but his dream of a united Europe would live on. It is said that he remarked the following to his publicist. My destiny is not yet accomplished. The picture yet exists only in outline. There must be one code, one court of appeal, one coinage for all Europe. The states of Europe must be melted into one nation, and Paris will be its capital. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to support it, then why not send us a PayPal donation? All donations help us pay to host the podcast and for us to create new content for your enjoyment. Furthermore, if you would like to submit a question or even a subject matter for the podcast, join Patreon and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The links are in our bio. Until next time, keep history alive.